As we begin today, I want to remind you of a couple things. Uh, first of all, uh, there are still roaming around here some Dietrich Bonhoeffer books. We've been uh, promoting these the last couple of weeks as an Advent resource, a way for you to uh, experience and participate in this expecting waiting period for Christmas, for the birth of Jesus. And so um, they're on your tables. If you don't have 10 bucks, just take it. I'm okay with that. It's all, all right. Um, if, uh, and, and we want this resource in your hands. You realize that, hey, you're two weeks behind. Who cares? Just start it tomorrow or start it today. And uh, I think it will, I've really enjoyed the wealth of um, of knowledge, and, and as Bonhoeffer writing, uh, you know, 75 years ago, sp speaks to my heart even today. And so I'd encourage you to take that resource with you. Uh, the other thing is, uh, there are some really exciting things happening at Waukee Community Church, and uh, things that in the spring uh, we're looking forward to talking about more and more and more. And so there, there are great things on the horizon. One thing that I would, would remind you, however, is that at this Christmas time of year, if you want to contribute uh, an end-of-the-year gift to Waukee Community Church, we greatly appreciate that as we're pretty far behind in our budget so far this year. But if you want to do that, just get it postmarked by the 31st and all will be well. All right, so let's dive into our seventh message in the series, Disciple Who. This is the last message today, and, and next week we're going to uh, jump into a couple of Christmas messages over the next couple of weeks. But in many ways, today is a, is, is a Christmas message as we talk about the incarnation of Jesus from Philippians chapter 2. Now, as a parent, there's a phrase that I've heard uttered a lot in my house. Uh, it's a phrase that I have probably uttered a lot in my life. It's a phrase that it's not just limited to my house, but it's limited, or it's expanded to your house potentially, and to many, many people you know in life. And it's this simple phrase, that's not fair. That's not fair. I know you've heard it. You've uttered it. You've said it. You've thought it. We all have. It's a phrase that I've heard a lot. Whether it's taking Olivia, my four-year-old, who can be in the absolute best mood, a joy brightening our day, and we say, Olivia, it's time to go to bed, and she drops to the ground in absolute tears, bawling with her fists on the floor. That's not fair. <laughs> you know, bedtime's not fair. Or whether it's one kid leaving uh, for school, uh, and one kid wants to leave 10 minutes earlier than the other, and I hear the phrase, well, that's not fair to me. We hear this phrase all the time. Fair is such an interesting concept. In fact, everyone seems to want what's fair. Everybody does. The English language definition, really, of the term fair has to do with just and appropriate circumstances. But that's not really what we mean when we say that's not fair. Fair. What we mean is something slightly different. We just want equal, <laughs> right? We want fair representation in government. We want fair distribution of wealth. We want God to be fair with us. Why, why does, you know, that person have something that I don't? And most of the time, we only cry unfair if we personally are at a disadvantage. You notice that? I mean, it's not that it never happens where we cry unfair for someone else, but most of the time we cry it for ourselves. I remember as a kid on Sunday nights, we'd come home from Sunday night church and my mom would pop a bowl of popcorn and we would sit down and watch, 
whatever ABC Family movie was on for a few minutes till bedtime, and my mom would take out one bottle of pop, one bottle of soda. Now, some of you uh, have no idea what a bottle, a glass bottle of soda is, but I remember this. We'd take out the glass bottle of soda from the fridge. She'd take out two glasses, and she would say to us, okay, boys, you're going to split this bottle of pop. One of you pours, the other one of you chooses. Right? So I can remember my brother over there, like, just being absolutely careful, pouring one and a little bit, just to get them perfectly equal so that no one would have an advantage. And uh, believe you me, if it came to the point where he accidentally poured too much in one glass, uh, I was never complaining. I would grab the one with more soda in it, and I'd be happy. I'd never cry unfair. But if he poured a little bit too much in one and he grabbed it, unfair! unfair, I'd cry out. We only cry out, generally speaking, unfair when we're at a disadvantage. Would you ever choose something for yourself that is unfair? Would you? Now, in an altruistic moment, you might. You might, for instance, hear on the radio that we're doing this thing in Des Moines where we're paying for the person behind us in the drive through line. And for that moment, you might go, yeah, that's not fair to me. That's fair to them. That's better to their advantage. But I'll do that. That's good. Or, you know, you might give money to a homeless person. Or you might let the crazy driver at Christmas time have the parking spot that they about killed you to get. You know, in an altruistic moment, you might choose what's in the best interest of someone else. But would you choose it? as a way of life. Would you make it a way of life to put others' needs ahead of your own? That is exactly what Paul tells the church at Philippi to do. He says, make unfair for you a way of life. Choose what's better for someone else. Look at the text, verse chapter 2, verse 3 of Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Make unfair for you a way of life. Choose what's fair for someone else. Now, some of you say, hey, Dave, come on, Dave, it's Christmas time. We sang Christmas songs. I'm in the joyful Christmas mood, and you go and ruin it by making me feel guilty. Uh, so I understand that we come to the table today with this sense of that. But what I need you to understand today is this way of life that Jesus sets out for us, giving like Jesus, is the very best way, not just to celebrate Christmas, but for you to live your entire life. We've talked about our definition of a disciple at Waukee Community Church. It's on the, the signs when you come in, but we've decided a disciple is someone who lives like Jesus, loves like Jesus, and now these last two weeks we've been talking about giving like Jesus. And we know a disciple is a disciple, as Dawson Troutman has said, a disciple isn't a disciple until he or she has made a disciple. So a disciple is a disciple maker. So a disciple maker of Jesus is someone who lives, loves, and gives like Jesus and then brings other people together to do it too. We're talking about now giving like Jesus. What does that mean? See, giving like Jesus is both an attitude and an action that are manifest when we choose what's best for someone else. You want to give like Jesus, choose what's best for someone else. 
Now, Paul gives us two ways to accomplish this in this passage that we looked at today. And the first one is found in what is generally understood to be a great hymn of the early church. It was a song that was sung. It was something that was memorized, a sort of catechism that they spoke about Jesus. And so it's generally understood that verses two, uh, excuse me, verses 5 to 11 are part of this great early church catechism about who Christ was and what his attitude was like. And Paul says, listen, you want to consider others better than yourself? You want to choose unfair for yourself as a way of life? You want to give like Jesus? It starts with attitude. Verse 5, your attitude, the text says, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Giving like Jesus is about attitude. How we relate to each other is governed by an attitude of humility. I must not consider myself above others. And in this way, this passage is the quintessential Christmas passage. This is a fantastic passage to remind us of what happened at Christmas when God came to us. This event called the Incarnation. This big God confines himself to the mortal fragile body of a human being, a baby, a poor baby, without status or rights in this world, a nobody. God became a human. And there's no greater message of giving your life away than Christmas. Big God, little baby, sacrifice. There's no better example of an attitude of considering others more important than ourselves than we run into at Christmas time. Now, we have this, there is a ton of theological truth packed into Philippians chapter 2. In fact, in the New Testament, we have four key passages that teach us about the nature and theology of who Jesus is. We have a four, three ones and a two. Uh, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, and Philippians 2. And this is one of the key passages that teaches us about the nature of who Jesus is. And what's interesting is it says here right away that one of the things about Jesus is that he chose what was unfair. He was equal in status to the Father. He was God. He had all the rights and privileges associated with being God. One would think that this attitude would reflect in his life. One would think that Jesus would say, hey, I'm God. I'm the king. Look at me. I'm at the top. I'm the best. Everyone be reminded of that and don't forget it. But Jesus' attitude is exactly the opposite. He didn't. He didn't want his position. Look what it says in verse 6. Who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to gr be grasped. This is really important to understand here. Jesus had all the rights and privileges associated with being God. But in becoming a human being, he said, I am not going to use those rights. I, I'm not losing my status as God. I'm not losing my identity as God. I'm still God, but I'm going to set aside my rights and privileges associated with being the best, most powerful, most wonderful being in the entire universe. I'm choosing not to use my rights associated with that. He didn't cling to his rights. Now, 
Think about what that means for us in terms of attitude. Because we live in America. We live in America, a country that was founded upon the basic concept that you have rights. There is an entire bill of rights that was written at the foundation of our country that established that you have rights. It is a foreign concept for us not to cling to our rights. If you don't fight for your rights, I've heard it said, no one will. But Jesus, who had every right in the entire universe, set them all aside. Paul says, our attitude should be the same. Well, you're like, hold on, Dave, a second. Wait a minute. You're treading on political ground here, and this is scary, right? Some of you are like, I have rights, and if I don't fight for my rights, no one will fight for my rights. I'm not saying that political rights are unimportant. I'm not saying that voting doesn't matter. I'm not saying any of that. I am saying that if you want your attitude to be like Jesus, you have to hold on to your rights and privileges very loosely. Because there's something more important going on here than your rights. The kingdom of God is so much more important than your particular rights, my particular rights. A Christ-like attitude holds our rights loosely. Jesus had all the rights in the entire universe. He held all the privileges in the entire universe, and he held them with an open hand. And for many of us here in this room today, if you're like me, this is a concept on which we continually must work to open up and say, this is what's best for me, and I hold it with an open hand because the kingdom of God is at stake. That's what Jesus did. Because of this attitude of humility, he lowered himself to be the almighty God in the form of a baby. Look at verse 7. He made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. This is Christmas. This is the incarnation. This is the great passage known as the kenosis or the emptying. God emptied himself of his rights and privileges and became one of us. And he assumed a new nature. Every time I teach this passage, I remind you, and I've referenced it many times over the last 10 years. Every time I teach this passage, I remind you that Jesus didn't lose any of his godness when he became a human being. He didn't set aside any of his nature of godness. Some people over the years have tried to imagine how God could become a human, and, and they've thought that some people have thought he was some kind of hybrid God, like a hybrid corn plant of some sort, with a little bit of this, a little bit of God, a little bit of human, and we have a half and half mix. But that's not what Scripture teaches. Jesus didn't cease to be God at all when he became a baby. Some people have thought, well, you just take one person and put two personalities in it. You have the God Jesus and the human Jesus, and it's sort of like this split personality disorder with these two things arguing all the time. But that's not what Scripture teaches us either. There's, it's not uh, a spatial understanding. Jesus is one person, but he has two natures to him, two distinct natures. And in an attitude of humility, he set aside his rights to use his power of God as God. Think about this. The almighty God of the universe had to have a diaper change. The almighty God of the universe was thirsty 
and completely dependent upon nursing from his mother. The almighty God of the universe was tired. God had never been tired. So tired that he couldn't keep his eyes open anymore. Sometimes we see as we look at Jesus as he grew, sometimes he doesn't know things because he chose to set aside his omniscience and to not know things because he had an attitude of humility. God had no need. Why would God do this? Because you and I, if we were God, we would never do this. Why would God do this? Because he considered others more important than himself. He had an attitude of humility because he had a mission. Now, Paul is really quick to remind us that it doesn't just stop here with the incarnation. Because that would have been enough, Jesus taking on an additional human nature for all of eternity. I mean, it's not like Jesus today doesn't have a human nature. He took on a human nature for the rest of all eternity. And if this wasn't enough sacrifice, we get to verse 8. He's found like this in the appearance of a man. And he humbled himself more. He became obedient to death. And if death isn't enough, even death on a cross, the most cruel form of death that I think humanity has ever devised, Jesus submitted himself to this. Is there a higher price that he could pay in putting our needs before his own? There's not. And this is what the, God, the essence of the gospel says. And we should never, ever lose sight of the grace of the gospel that it speaks into our life. Because God, the almighty God of the universe, came to us as one of us. Let us kill him. And his blood covered our sins. Theologians call this substitutionary penal atonement. It's a really fancy word to say. Jesus' death substituted for our death. It was a legal, it was a legal transaction that took place. And in so he atoned or made right our sins. Jesus for you, for me. Could there be a more servant attitude than that? Christmas always looks forward to Good Friday and to Easter. Christmas always looks to the cross. There is a manger always sitting in the shadow of the cross. It always reminds us that the incarnation was an attitude of humility that didn't just stop there. Why would God do this? He did this because he valued people. That is the only way this makes sense. That is the only way this makes sense at all for the God of the universe to humble himself, to become one of us. The only way that makes sense is that if you and I are of intrinsic worth and value to God, you're important to him. You cannot give like Jesus then unless you employ this same attitude of valuing the very people that God made. Valuing them enough to humble yourself, to serve people. People are important. If you look around this room, some of the people here you know well, some of them you don't know at all. If you look around your neighborhood, some of the people you know well, some of them you don't know at all. 
If you look at work, some of the people you know well, some of them you don't know at all, yet all of them, even the ones you don't like, have an intrinsic value and worth to God. Enough where just as Jesus had an attitude of humility, so we should have an attitude of humility, setting aside our rights and privileges to serve and love and consider others as more important than themselves, than ourselves. Now, some would say, well, Dave, this is a really depressing message this Christmas because you just told me I got to walk out of here. And because, you know, I kind of want myself to be the most important. I realize that. And this is convicting. And, and this stinks. But listen, if you would think this is a miserable kind of life, always putting others better as more important than yourselves, listen for a second what happened to Jesus. Because we get a clue in here that living a servant life doesn't mean you just lay on the ground and let people kick you until your life is worthless. Look what happens to Jesus. Therefore, verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. I love this picture here. That in the kingdom of God that we talked about last week. When we flip the power structure upside down. And when we serve others and maintain and employ an attitude of humility. When we do this there is a great reward for us, because Jesus is rewarded greatly. And so when we say, I want to give like Jesus, there's a reward for us. When we adopt the attitude of Christ, there's a reward for us. When Jesus gives, he's exalted. When we give like Jesus, we're blessed. There's two ways I think that we're blessed in this. Um, first of all, humility is a blessing in and of itself. Humility is a blessing in and of itself. Think about this for a minute. You've heard it said, and you've heard people say, the heads of organizations, people who are in leadership positions, they say it's lonely at the top. You've heard people say that. CEOs, public faces of companies. One of the reasons that it's lonely at the top is because to get to the top, these people had to stomp on other people all the way up. They had to employ the kind of life to get to the top that pushed everyone down. And in that process, you push people away. The kind of humble life is a kind of life that says, what's more important to me is you. That's the kind of life that is good and right. There's a goodness to that. There's a second way that this happens, and, and, G, and God says to us at some point in our lives. Someday we're going to stand before Jesus and he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. To me, that is the best motivation to live a humble, other-centered life. Because I know someday I'm going to stand before him and there would be no greater joy for me than hearing Jesus say, well done, Dave, my good and faithful servant. Way to give like I did. That's what I wanted. To all you people pleasers in the room, this is your moment. This is your moment when your master says, I am pleased with you. And there is no greater reward than that. It's employing an attitude of living like Jesus. 
So there's a second way, I think, in this passage that Paul talks to us about um, having a servant attitude, about having a humble attitude of considering others more important than ourselves. It's not merely attitude, it's also action. It's not merely attitude, it's through actions that are incarnational. It's through actions that are incarnational. Paul says this in, as the passage continues. Sometimes we stop reading at the end of verse 11 because it's so great. And we forget that Paul says, oh, by the way, I quoted this great hymn for a reason. I quoted it for a reason because I want you to keep obeying. Not only in my presence, now much more in my absence. Verse 12, listen. Continue to work out your salvation. This is such a fantastic phrase. What Paul is telling us here, reminding us, is we need to, just like Jesus worked out this humble attitude, we need to work out this great salvation we have in a similar way. If Jesus was incarnational, if Jesus entered our world, if he came to us in this incarnation, could we be like that for others? Could possibly the working out of our salvation mean simply that we have embraced this attitude of giving like Jesus and followed it up with an action? That just as the, the attitude of humility that Jesus employed resulted in him in the incarnation of him coming to us, what if the attitude of Jesus results in the incarnation of us going and investing in other people? Could we do the working out of our salvation this way? I had two thoughts as I was thinking about this. The first one is we live incarnationally with others because we value them by making a move like God made towards us. By being intentional about stepping into the relationship with people who are far from Jesus. For people who we say that person is far from God and I want to help them by stepping into their world. For some of you, this might mean stepping into a racquetball league for a purpose, because you're going to invest in a relationship with someone else. For some of us, it might mean going on a golf outing, right? Like that sounds horrible and terrible for some of you. Like you might have to suffer by going golfing because you're trying to invest and step into the world. By the way, if you ever golf with me, you would just have to be an incredible person of patience, right? Because uh, I have to have a whole lot of golf balls if you're going golfing with me. All right, so if you were to step, if I were to step into your world of golfing like this would be a big deal, all right? Some of you need to make a decision to step into the world of somewhere else. Maybe you step into a book club for a purpose. Maybe you take a job simply so you can interact with the people at that job who are far from Jesus. It's just simply be relational and be intentional. Be intentional about what we do because I'm employing an attitude of humility that Jesus had, and that attitude resulted in him stepping into our world. Another way that we continue to work out our salvation is by opening our eyes to see where he's placed you. Uh, We mentioned this, and I've talked about it three weeks in a row, this simple idea that what if God has chosen the place where you live for you on purpose? Because that's what he tells us in the book of Acts, that he chose the place where you're living right now on purpose. So that's what this map is about. 
I've talked about it for the last three weeks. This will be the last week that it's in here. Um, but the idea is that you fill this map out and put it on your bathroom mirror or your refrigerator. This is simply your neighborhood right here. You know, the, imagine that this is your square block uh, and that your house is the middle and you think about the, the eight houses all around you. Maybe you're out in the country and this doesn't really work, but, or maybe you're in an apartment and this doesn't really work. But the simple idea is this. Identify those people who live around you. What if loving your neighbor meant actually knowing your neighbors? And so taking this, I've talked about it for three weeks in a row, because what if it's not just stepping into the realm of somebody who, with whom you've never met and don't interact? What if it's also stepping into the world of the place that God has put you? And start with a simple exercise. Could you identify all eight neighbors by name? Could you do it? I would ask you to put yourself on a mission and simply learn the first names of your neighbors. Is that really hard? It's not hard. But it's saying, God, you put me here in this house, in this apartment, in, in this whatever condo that I live in, this townhouse, wherever I live, for a reason. And I'm going to love people around me enough to simply learn their name. And then you can ask yourself some other questions. You know, what kind of jobs or hobbies does that person have? What do you know? Start to fill this out and then put it on your thing and pray for these people. Um, and pray for him. One of the ways that Clarissa and I are working this out in our neighborhood is this. Uh, we've been trying to figure out how to get a, to know our couple, a couple neighbors and and so we're trying to, to find a time where we can invite a neighbor over our house and invite someone from our life group over and just have dinner together. Like we're going to say, here's someone who's a, my, from my life group who's a believer who loves Jesus just like I do, and here's my neighbor who I don't know anything about him, and we're going to get us all together and show that person just what it looks like when believers interact with each other. And so Clarissa and I, we had a house for sale right across the street from us, and it just sold, and we just met our neighbor, Saeed. And we are trying to figure out a way to have Saeed and his family over and get someone for our life group and just love our neighbor because we want to be incarnational in the very place that God has put us. It's not hard. It's really not. It's just intentional. Look at the neighbor. Think about how much God loves our neighbor. Step into their life because God loves them. Continue to work out your salvation. It's a process, an ongoing process. And I love how Paul says, it's not continue to work at your salvation so that you can become saved. No, 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 no. That's not what this is about. This is about the outpouring of the grace that God has given to you in the incarnation of being this way with others. He tells us how to do it too. He says do it with fear and trembling. This is just simply about knowing our place. God is God and we're not. And then I love the next phrase. He says, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. This is the most comforting passage in, in, for me in this entire group. I love this whole passage of scripture, but this phrase, it's God who works. This takes away any fear that I might have because I, I, I'm an achiever, right? I want to achieve a certain level of success. I want to go, hey God, you sent me on this mission and, and I did it. And look, I've got success at it. But this takes success out of the equation. Because the reminder to us is, it is not up to us to be God in someone's life. That's God's job. Our job is just to step in and see what God does. It takes all the pressure off. It's so fantastic. 
I just show up. I mean, how much easier can you get than that? Show up. Just show up wherever God has put you and say, God, what are you going to do? It's cool to see what he does do when we do that. The passage continues about how we act in an incarnational way. Look at verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing. How, my kids, how many times have I quoted this Bible verse to you? <laughs> like, I, I, I am uh, free to misuse this with my children all I want. And, uh, but the, the idea here is uh, another version says grumbling or disputing. Um, this is interesting because when we live like this, we live very differently than the rest of our culture. Now, I have quite a few friends who are attorneys. And, and uh, I was talking to one friend of mine who's an attorney. He said, how am I supposed to do my job? <laughs> like, like, I dispute for a living. And Paul is, I, I mean, believe me, we need our attorneys to dispute. We need them to do what they do really well. Paul is not telling us to just shut our mouths. Jesus flipped tables and kicked people out of the temple. He called Pharisees broods of liars. There's a sense in which Sometimes as we wrestle with this idea, what we just realize, need to realize that if God is really sovereign, sometimes it's okay to just stop. In, in the Greek culture, this word for grumbling, uh, had when, when in the Greek culture when someone said don't grumble or don't dispute, the idea behind this is that you would stop and accept the fate of the gods. Paul is grabbing that imagery here and saying to you and I, you and I are so used to fighting for everything that we want to achieve in life. And there's a place in which we just stop. And we say, I'll let someone take advantage of me. It's okay because I want to do things like Jesus does. I want to give like Jesus. Okay, God, what you want as a careful line as a Christian that we need to think about. We need to engage the brain that God's given us. We don't just make a hard and fast rule where we say, uh, no one can ever argue about anything again. That's not what we're saying. Paul is talking about a way of life that looks radically different where we trust God and say, God, I'm done fighting for myself and I'm just going to trust you. When you do this, do you understand what happens? This is great. When you do this, you'll become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. When you employ the attitude of Jesus, it looks different. If your goal is merely financial domination, it might work out for you. If your goal is merely a promotion at work, it might work or it might not work. If your goal is to live out the kingdom of God, giving like Jesus will work because it's different. It stands out. Standing out as a Christian might not get you promoted. Standing out as a Christian by being humble and giving like Jesus might not be to your seeming advantage, but it will work when you're caring and concerned about the work of the kingdom of God in this world. There's a, a game that many of you have seen uh, 
Coles. Where's Waldo? Remember that was like the rage 15, 20 years ago where there was this guy in a book and, and you had a book and you were supposed to find this guy. And uh, sometimes the page looked like this next picture here, like that, you know. And you had to find that little guy in that book. And he blended in so well. People spent hours searching through these pages trying to find Waldo. But now, there, there's, uh, for, for people who aren't really good at this game, there, there's a, a, an easier version out there of Where's Waldo, uh, where Waldo stands out a little bit more. Here, you might want to look at this picture here. Like, that, <laughs> like that's my speed, right? <laughs> that is what the Christian looks like when we employ an attitude of giving like Jesus. We stick out and shine like stars in the universe. And we invest in others by being incarnational because eternity is at stake. When we look around us and the people around us, we value them and say their eternity is at stake because that's what Jesus said. So will you choose an attitude that gives like Jesus? Will you consider others more important than yourselves? Will you act upon the attitude? Will you step into someone else's life just like Jesus stepped into yours? Why would you do this? Simply because you care deeply about the kingdom of God radically working itself out, restoring what God sees as valuable. The story is told of a family who bought an old farmstead out in the country. The previous owner had lived there for most of his life. The farm was old. They, they bought it and they came in and one of the things they discovered is this, this old farmer out there in this farmstead had uh, kind of developed a junkyard of sorts. Anytime he had old equipment, he just kind of threw it out and weeds grew up around it. And so this family decided, well, there might be some value in there. I'll call a bunch of junk collectors together. They can go through it. They can maybe pay me a few dollars for the stuff and, and get rid of all this stuff. There was a man who came in there and started rummaging through the weeds and looking at the garbage, and he found something in there that was, to him, of intrinsic value. To most people, it looked like a rusted old pickup truck that was missing all the glass, and the interior was shot. It had been sitting out in there in the rain for years, and in many cases, rust had just eaten through the hood, or the hood was gone, maybe, and, uh, and this car was sitting on blocks, and, you know, there was not even a prayer of trying to start it. Like, that wasn't even on the agenda, uh, and he saw this rusted old pickup, but he saw something different than most people. Because this guy restored cars for a living and he knew that this was a rare 1938 Ford pickup truck. And so he hauled it out of there and he moved it to his shop in the garage and, and on the weekends he would start picking away at this thing. He'd start picking away and he'd start restoring it and doing the work. In many cases, it was missing parts and he searched high and low to find the missing parts. Some, in some cases, he had to search for years to find the missing parts. His friends looked at him and said, you're crazy. You're never going to get that truck back to what it once was. But he was persistent. He kept at it. He kept restoring. He kept working on it. Every week, he'd trudge out there and eventually... He finished it, and it was this gorgeous and beautiful, rare 1938 Ford pickup truck. 
Some people asked him, how'd you get this? How did you do that? As he showed them the before and after pictures. And he said, the truck was there all along. You just had to see it. And sometimes, you guys, when I look at what God is doing in the world around us, the key to giving like Jesus is seeing people the way he sees them. God valued this messed up, broken world in which we live where sin has had its day and ransacked people. And God said, I see something better. I see a world restored to the kingdom of God where people are valuable. The question for you and me is, will you see people the same way? If you do, you can give like Jesus. You will give like Jesus. You will invest your time in people who are difficult and hard and broken because God loves them immeasurably. And if Waukee Community Church could be that kind of place, as I watch and see what God is doing in our midst all around us, and we know it might take time, but we see people and value them broken and are willing to be incarnational with them because that's how God sees them. And that's what God was willing to do with us. We consider other people more important than ourselves when we look with kingdom eyes. Our worship team is going to come up and we're going to close together in a song. A song that really emphasizes this simple point. That we give like Jesus because we care about those who are broken. Because God cares about them. Would you pray with me as our worship team comes up? Heavenly Father, we confess to you that giving like Jesus is really hard. And we confess that sometimes we don't value people the way you do. And we confess sometimes we don't even really care about the kingdom of God because we're so busy with other stuff. And so in a moment of reflection today, Heavenly Father, we pause. We simply pause to say, please forgive us. The grace you give us is free and overflowing. Help us to view people with your eyes and to give our lives away in such a way that we live considering others more important than ourselves because we see them the way you do. And in the end, our greatest joy comes when you are glorified through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing as we close?